Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Um, thanks very much for coming back to the, uh, to the Islington. And um, it's terrific to see you all. And um, Dave and I have been very lucky that we've managed to spend a vast amount of our lives making money, bizarrely, and admittedly not much, from being music journalists. So we are fantastically thrilled to have tonight two of the key people who got the ball rolling. The first, In fact, the first rock and pop critics. And the first of these that we're going to um, ask up was the sage, seer and prophet... Who, um, the cub reporter, in fact, for Record Mirror, who wrote this terrific uh, thing in, this is August in 1962, in the Record Mirror. And his piece starts, Is the Liverpool area the rockingest part of the Great British Isles? And he draws our attention to three groups who he thinks proves his point, And they are the Spider-Men, the Moroccans, and the Beatles. So bang on the money from the start. I always thought that the Moroccans were massively underrated. So could, we, could you please welcome on stage the fantastic Norman Joplin. There you go. Very good. Take up thy mic, yes. Norman. I've turned it on. So Norman has written a fantastic book called Shake It Up, Baby, uh, the subtitle of which is Notes from a Pop Music Report in 1961 to 1972. And Norman, what we wanted to do was to start with the world that you kind of entered into at Record Mirror before the arrival of the Beatles, really. So it was, it was, it was a world uh, populated by people like Connie Francis, and there he had the great Ackerbilk. I'm old enough, I have to say, to remember these records uh, on the radio, however old I was, six or seven or whatever. And uh, what kind of a world was it that you began reporting on pre-Beatles? Well, it was nothing like post-Beatles. Uh, at, that, at that time, the British music scene really was, it was part of the show business establishment. There was no real pop music scene. Uh, it, was all, it was all controlled by the same people. Uh, it was the theatre groups, uh, the magazines. Everybody, everybody was part of that show business establishment. And it wasn't until probably, I guess, after the, after the Merseybeat explosion and when the, and when the R&B groups came along that it started to break away and became something in its own right, really. I, I'm going to ask a question here to just... Uh, and, and, 
to unashamedly date you, okay? Uh, we always ask this on, on, on the Word in Your Ear podcast. What sort of means did you have of playing music in your house when you were growing up as a child? What was that? As a child? Yes. Just trying to get a picture of your home life. There wasn't a, there wasn't a gramophone. Didn't get a... No gramophone. No, no, no gramophone. No radiogram. Nothing until I bought uh, a darn set when I was 14, I think. But a wireless, presumably? Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. what were you hearing on the wireless? Wireless. Sorry, so quick, I mean, didn't it? <laughs> I mean, at that age, uh, there wasn't a lot to hear. I can remember two-way family favourites. Uh, you used to listen to that to get some decent things, but there wasn't much else because you had those needle time restrictions at the BBC where they, you know, they're only allowed to play a certain... I don't know what the needle time was, how many minutes... It was it very was. few, yeah, very, very few records. So, so this is in the days of the light programme. Yes. So and most of what you would hear during the week were orca- light orchestral, dance bands, tunes from the shows, sure. that kind of thing. But of course you had Radio Luxembourg in the evening. Right, right. So but the benefit was... of anybody younger in the audience, explain the Radio Luxembourg experience as a listener. What they had on Radio Luxembourg was the... the uh, the major record companies, they would, they would book uh, segments of about an hour long and they were their own programmes. So you'd have uh, Decca, for example, would have an hour-long programme. Uh, they had people like uh, Tony Hall doing it, uh, Jimmy Savile, I think, did the Decca one. Uh, EMI uh, had one. Capital had a separate one from EMI. A guy called Ray Orchard used to do that. But the beauty of those programmes was you got to hear everything that was released on those labels. You might only maybe hear two-thirds of it, but you got to hear it all, whereas on the BBC you'd never get to hear the obscure stuff. Uh, And on Radio Luxembourg you did. You got to hear everything that they released. Um, So, of course, you know, at that age you'd make your little lists out of the records that you wanted that you'd never afford to buy. Uh, And which were the records that were, were exciting you at that time? Late 50s, early 60s. Oh, rock and roll. Rock and roll, definitely. Yeah. Elvis, Billy Fury. Yeah, Elvis, uh, Buddy Not Holly, Elvis. Everly Brothers, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, uh, that lot, Eddie Cochran. Yeah. yeah. So where were you living? Did you get an opportunity to go and see any of these people? No, I was, I was in the suburbs. I, uh, I, was, I was in Wood Green, North London. Uh, and uh, I never used to go and see anything. I mean, I, I, I would go to local uh, church halls, rock hops, they used to call them, you know, and you'd get the local, the little local bands, and they'd be thrashing out, uh, churning out the rock and roll things. That's, but uh, I never went to any big gigs, not really until I joined Record Mirror. So all this stuff was just kind of growing in your head, was it, really? Because yeah. you were hearing this stuff and just kind of imagining what it was like. Yeah, but I was, I was, I was quite fanatical about it. Uh, you know, I used to spend all my money, all my pocket money on records, and yeah. And I left school at 16. One of the reasons was so I'd have enough money to buy more records. Where did you go and buy records? There was a place called Savile Pianos in Wood Green. Savile Pianos? Yeah, Savile Pianos. So that's an instrument shop which just had a little bloke at the back with a little box of, of singles or whatever. No, no, it was a very good, it was a very well stocked shop. Uh, very well stocked. Uh, and they would have. When, when you bought a 45, you get the 45, and they would have their own little cardboard 
case over yes. the 45 with a little hole and then their, their advertisement on it. So you had this beautiful little artefact that you could take home with you. So that was nice. But, but basically, in those days, the, y- y- you were like a, you know, a thirsty man you know, crawling through the desert, was, really, in, t- in terms of access to, to stuff. You know. but, so we move on from that, from that time to, I suppose, the arrival of the Beatles. Is that, you know, is that around... Can I, can I just, just mention that there's a brilliant bit in, in Norman's book where, where this single comes out, and um, the record mirrors review, they describe it as strictly fab which is a brilliant assessment. And then they end the review by saying, we can't think of anything to have a go about, which is the highest possible praise that you could bestow. So uh, is that, was that the effect of that record, of the Record Mirror Office? For once, yeah. everybody was united and agreed that it was, it was sensational. Yes, yeah, I think that was a Peter Jones review, but the rest of the review is great. I mean, if you, you, know, if you read the book, it's a terrific review that he gave to that single. But the, the first time that I... As you said, the first time I heard of them was uh, through his paper Mersey Beat. Bill Harry, that was Bill, was uh, went to art college with with John Lennon, and he sent us a copy of Mersey Beat. And I'm I'd only been writing for Record Mirror about all oh, must have been about nine months, and they weren't allowing me out to interview anybody at that time because I was I was eighteen and uh, I didn't interview trusted. any. No, I couldn't be trusted, <laughs> uh, and uh, so. I was looking through this Mersey beat, and it's, it was like looking at an alternative rock universe. I'd never heard of any of these people, and nobody in the office had heard of them. So I wrote that article about, is Liverpool the rockingest part of the British Isles? Something like that. And I noticed that uh, this group called The Beatles were sharing the bill with Bruce Chanel. And oh, I thought, yes. well, who are these Beatles to, sh- to, to share the bill with the great Bruce <laughs> Chanel? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, he's had uh, one hit. Uh, uh, yeah. w- w- it was a very big he's hit. He's a hell of a guy. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, so I thought, this is interesting. And then about a couple of weeks later, I saw a picture of them and I thought, these guys are going to be huge because they actually look great. They... they they look somewhere between sort of bohemian modernist, that kind of look. And uh, I hadn't heard them because I hadn't made a record yet. And at that time, there was a lot happening in London. I mean, the fashion scene in London was, you know, the high fashion on the streets was, was happening. But it wasn't happening musically. The, the, uh, most of the artists and the bands in London were, they were still under the shadow of Elvis. They were still bequiffed, yes. uh, you know, it's all ha ha and all this sort of thing. Uh, and there was, still that, there was still that ambition with most of the people in the pop business to become all-round entertainers. That was still the ambition. And, of course, you know, when the Beatles came along, and I think John Lennon says something like, you know, you do this and then you stop, and that's it. Uh, and that's when everything completely changed. I think, I think you're actually, to mention another book, I think you're actually quoted in Mark Lewison's... Um extraordinary trilogy about the Beatles, which he's only written the first part of, um, about when the Beatles turned up in the record mirror office. And they, isn't that what they did in those days? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, yeah you know, did. they, they, you, didn't, you didn't go to them. They oh, came no, to you. No, no, no. Well, uh, Sid Gillingham, who was the, he was the, uh, the press officer at EMI, they loved me to do it. Sid just, Gillingham. That's yeah, the old days yeah. of the music. They just... Uh, Love Me Do had just come out, I think about a couple of weeks, and Sid was on the phone to the editor, a guy called Jimmy Watson, 
And uh, Sid said, oh, I said, I've got them. He said, the Beatles are down from Liverpool. Does anybody... I can't get any interest in them. <laughs> he, said, uh, he said, does anybody want to interview them? And I'd you know, seen, seen the picture, read about them, and I said, yeah, yeah, because I thought, what are they going to be like? Like, are they going to be sort of just flash your bows or are they going to have something else going for them? Anyway, next day, Brian came up. Brian, uh, Brian Epstein came up with Paul and... And they sat down and, you know, I spoke to Paul and got a reasonable interview out of him, okay. But we just really spent the rest of the time talking about rhythm and blues because everybody used to talk about rhythm and blues then. Rhythm and blues was the thing we were talking about. Arthur Alexander, James Ray, these kind of people. And and on and on and on. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And I was interested, Brian was interested because he was doing a lot of blushing at this time. And I thought it, I thought, they got a gay manager, uh, and I didn't really think anything of it except that he's, his attitude was, was so beautiful, it was paternal. He had this very paternal attitude towards the Beatles, and it was very nice. And I thought, yeah, they're being really well looked after. And as you say, that was when you know, they used to come and see you. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. happened for that was about three months, and then of course, as soon as Please Please Me came out, and the, the sort of Love Me Do was like the touch paper lit and Please Please Me was the, but it's the interesting, rocket going up. It's interesting that the first, uh, the thing that you first recognised about them was the way they looked. The way they... they oh, well, behaved... Because George Martin was pretty much the same about them at EMI, wasn't he? Lots of people at the time. It was the, it was the look of them at first. They looked hip, yeah. And they were funny, so... And, and the internal dynamic of the group was just them talking to each other, wasn't it? Their humour that they liked. Mm. There's right. a lovely bit in 1965 when you go on the help set and you haven't well, seen Paul McCartney yeah. for about two years and he remembers you. Yeah, I hadn't so seen, yeah. wonderfully diplomatic. He goes, oh, OK. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't seen him for two and a half years oh, and I was fantastic. on the set of help. It was a Meet the Beatles competition. We had a, a couple of girls, they'd won this competition. I took them along and nobody had heard of this competition that was at Twickenham Film Set and I managed to sort of blag my way to the, to the front of the soundstage and I was really nervous. And the Beatles were in the distance filming and it was two and a half years after Love Me Do, so you can imagine what they'd been through in that time. And I thought, what am I going to do? And then they sort of broke off, and Paul just sort of stepped out, I guess, to have a ciggy, and he, and he must have clocked me from about 30, 40 yards, and he came over, Norman, great to see you, man, what are you doing? And I said, oh, meet the Beatles, and he got it. He got it just like that, straight up to the girls, shaking their hands, lovely to meet you, come and meet the rest of the boys, the whole bit. And I'm sort of... Whew, yeah, because it hadn't been set up properly. You, you were, you were, no, you were no. winging it. No, it hadn't been set up. So properly. you just turned up at what Twickenham Film Studios, or yeah, where was it? Yeah, you just turned up with a couple of readers. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. meet the biggest group in the world. But it worked out beautifully. Uh, I got a Paul gave me an exclusive interview afterwards, which was which was lovely. The girls got to meet the Beatles, and everything was. It's a high pressure event. Everything two was girls, great. They hadn't met the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> still, they've never recovered. <laughs> so we got one of the, we got a picture of the. I can't remember. Is there a stone? Well, this is oh, actually, yeah, this, is, this, this is one of Norma's pieces. Oh, yeah, I yeah, think. Yeah. Introducing the Rolling Stones to the to the readers of Record Mirror. I love the idea that the headline is uh, a genuine R and B because that's one thing that, uh, that the music papers were very keen on. One thing was authenticity. Oh yeah, very uh, against yeah. the idea of fakes. People yeah. got to be genuine, you know. And these people were deemed to be so, weren't they? The Stones. Well, uh, I mean, I didn't think so at first because because uh, what had happened was there's a fellow called George Ogomolsky who used to do a lot of he used to promote a lot of clubs. He was especially in the 
I think he brought over a lot of blues artists with Chris Barber in the 50s. Is that better? Uh, and um, he, he ran a club called the Crawdaddy Club uh, in Richmond. And he was promoting the Rolling Stones. They were the Rolling Stones. That headline, actually, that's, that's a misspelling. That should have been Rolling Stones. Apostrophe. Uh, really? An apostrophe, yeah. yeah. Uh, and anyway, Giorgio was pestering our features editor, Peter Jones, because Peter, Peter used to hold court at Dehem's Oyster Bar uh, just off Shaftesbury Avenue in Macclesfield Street. And you know, because he was the features editor, all of the publicists and the managers and everybody used to go there because you know, the, the currency was, was column inches. And, uh, and, 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 and Peter could deliver this. And Giorgio was pestering Peter. And Peter wasn't into rhythm and blues at all. Peter was, Peter was, a, Peter was a real showbiz guy. And, uh, but Giorgio eventually got Peter to go to see the Rolling Stones. And Peter came back and he said, I think, he said, look, you're the rhythm and blues man. You're, you're the expert. You, you, you go see them and you write about them. And I said, nah, I said, British rhythm and blues, you know, it's... it's <laughs> first, and you were first, how old? And you came yeah. from Wood Green? 19. That hotbed uh, of the... Yeah. You know, okay. Yeah. Okay, fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and, and, and and this went on for weeks, and Peter was pestering and pestering me. I said, look, they'll be rubbish. I'm not going. And eventually I so gave in. So much for the open mind, yeah. you youth. Yes, yeah, yeah. Eventually I gave in, and I went there... Uh, I, I went there with my girlfriend and a photographer and we, we got there and we were about 10 minutes late and there was a whole crowd of people outside that couldn't get in so we sort of elbowed our way to the, to the front and you know, flashing press cards and cameras and Giorgio's at the door press cards as well. pushed us in <laughs> and, and went in there uh, to the station hotel and, 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 it was an, and it was an epiphany I mean the, they were, I think they were playing a it might have been Mona, the Bo Diddley song. It's definitely a Bo Diddley song. And I heard this, and there was this the sound. And but the thing was, it wasn't just the sound; it was the feel. Because I'd never, I'd never heard a British group that had the feel. They had the feel, and they did one. You know, Jimmy Reed, Chuck Berry. You know, maybe a Muddy song, one after the other. And I'm, I'm, I'm in a state of shock actually because I didn't think it could be done. I really, I. I'd seen a load of a load of people uh, from Alexis's groups, and you know they were good musicians and good singers, but they didn't have that feel. And I went and and, and afterwards, and, I'm, and I remember thinking when they stopped, I remember thinking, "We can do it. White people can do it." I mean, I don't know whether white people ever actually did it much better than they did it then, but that's sort of what I thought at the time. And then. Brian came up to me, Brian Jones, and he said, what can you do for us? And I sort of said, well, anything, really. So I came back and I wrote the article, and it didn't go in for a week or two because uh, they didn't have a record out, and we were called Record Mirror. And the idea was that you wrote about people with records. Uh, They didn't have a record out, so there's no hurry to put it in. So... uh, In the meantime, Peter Jones is round on this stall at... Dehem's Oyster Bar, and this time he's being pestered by Andrew Oldham, who was a publicist, and, 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 and Andrew's saying, oh, you got anything for me, Peter? And Peter said, well, he said, he said I think you should go and check out this, uh, this group, the Rolling Stones, he said, because I think they're interested in management. And he said, and Norman's writing an article, a rave article about them, and then everybody's going to know about them. So uh, Andrew, being an being a exceptionally shrewd guy, 
went to see them, experienced the same, the same epiphany that I did, and being a lot shrewder than anybody else that I knew, had them sign up for management, agency and records within a week. <laughs> and you never thought that could have been you? No, no, I didn't actually. I mean, it, wouldn't have, it, it didn't, wouldn't have crossed my mind. I was really happy doing what I was doing, doing the reporting. Right. You know, getting into other sides of the music business, it was... And, I mean, no, no, it didn't, didn't cross my mind, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so this is, the, um, this is the paper, magazine, whatever, that we're talking about. I used to be a devoted reader. Uh, I used to go to Wakefield bus station every Thursday morning Great. on the way to school. Probably out 15, and, uh, and it was either that or the New Musical Express. Uh, and uh, frankly, I was one of those people who was just attracted by the fact it was in colour. It was in colour, exactly. Because that was really, that was a huge thing, wasn't it? That colour was, was part well, of the, the strategy we were, behind Record Mirror. Well, we were never too sure about that. In fact, we didn't intend for it to be in colour. But what happened was, uh, it was in black and white when it was called the New Record Mirror. And our editor, Jimmy Watson, he knew that charts were the big thing. And he used to get... He got the cash box top 50 airmailed over. Yes, it says that on the, on the charts yeah. page, doesn't it? Airmail. American. It says, buy airmail. Yes, buy We're all air. going, ooh. Well, <laughs> yeah. a blue envelope. It was so impressive. That's a miracle. It was impressive in those it days. It was. No, I was <laughs> impressed. And, uh, and we did the top 50 from Record Retailer. And what with that and the Rhythm of Blues articles, like, the circulation shot up quite a lot. But we got taken over in the end of 1963 because uh, most of the shares of Record Mirror were owned by Decca Records, but they weren't telling anybody about it, uh, and they didn't and they didn't have any kind of editorial pull. They didn't they didn't make us use Decca artists or anything like that. Particularly, uh, they were they were you know, a silent owner. Uh, they'd done this because the guy that used to own Record Mirror, Izzy Green, he, he, he was getting more and more broke because he was making the paper more and more showbiz. And people like Norman Wisdom and Eddie Calvert were buying the shares and, and eventually Decker just sort of bought the whole lot. And then uh, Edward Lewis, who owned it, was, was at a lunch with uh, John Juner. John Juner was the editor of the Sunday Express at that time. And the other guy at the lunch was uh, an MP called Woodrow Wyatt, that some of you may remember. And These are such sinister figures from the, yeah, from and the past. Woodrow Wyatt had just bought a web offset printing machine that he'd moved into his printers. Uh, it's a brand new Goss machine from Germany. And John Juno, who was the editor of the Sunday Express, had the idea that he wanted to be the first national to be in colour. This was in 63, long before anybody did this. But he didn't want to go straight away, so he needed a guinea pig. And uh, we were the guinea pig. Uh, Edward Lewis sold Record Mirror virtually to John Juna as a, as a personal thing, and John Juna then moved Record Mirror from our, from our uh, hot metal printers in... High Wycombe up to Banbury, where the uh, where Woodrow White's printers. But presumably, was. some of that was people weren't absolutely one hundred percent confident it was going to work. That, no, that no, the colour was going to be out of range. In fact, when I worked for Record Mirror, you know, in nineteen seventy eight, it was often completely out of focus and sort of smudged. You know? yeah, <laughs> still, they yeah. hadn't really cracked yeah. it actually. Yeah, well, well, that's probably why the Sunday Express didn't go into colour. Yeah. But nevertheless, they uh, 
they they worked on it with us. Well, they didn't work on it with us. They they said, oh, you know, we'll show you how to lay the thing out. We knew how to lay it out anyway. But they uh, they sent their layout people down to from 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 Fleet Street to where we were in Shaftesbury Avenue. Of course, this was great for the guys from the Sunday Express because they stayed there for they stayed at our place for about ten minutes and they wandered off into Soho for the rest of the afternoon. One of the one of the things I like about Norman's book actually is it's got the tang of real journalism. Uh, about it, that he always remembers how much they drank on expenses when going for press days and so forth. And you know, it, it was pointed out on one occasion that I think the drink bill was higher than the hotel bill. Well, yeah, that, yeah, 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 yeah. That that uh... <laughs> would have been impressed by. <laughs> Probably been promoted. Oh, this is a great. Piece. No, this is to do with the oh, this guy. Sea Club, isn't it? It's Guy Stevens. Guy Stevens. Yeah. This is Guy that is a very very poor picture, but it's fantastic. terrific. Well, I'm sorry, about the quality is. Yeah. Not Great, but you know that is. You talk about cred. Oh, it's a wonderful picture. It's got. It's got the. Is it the Phillips version of the, of the Robert Johnson album? Mm. You know that. Oh, right. that, yeah, that really dates it. You know, James Ray. So he was a friend of yours and an associate. Tell he, us about Guy Stevens. Guy. Guy was. Uh, Guy was working in the city. He had a job in insurance. He didn't talk about it. Uh, but uh, he came down. When he found that somebody was writing about rhythm and blues, because I was sort of, I was the flag waver for rhythm and blues. I loved it so much. I, it was my crusade to, to, to tell everybody about this. And, uh, and Guy, so Guy came down, he was hanging around the office, and he knew much more about rhythm and blues than I did. And, he, and then he got this gig at the scene on Monday night. Uh, Ronan O'Reilly uh, opened this club called The Scene. And this uh, was, it was in uh, Wimble, Great Wimble Street? Yes, yes, it was just so, a ham yeah. yard, ham it yard. was, oh, ham yeah. yard. And it was a, just, a, just a little dive, but it was opened as a rhythm and blues club. So there was a lot of, lot of live acts from America, Britain, uh, and they gave, the guy the, uh, they gave him the dead night on, uh, on Mondays, and he turned that into a big attraction because he had a fantastic collection of records and... Uh, yeah, that was the place to go. There's a lovely bit in the book where you were, used to go there on your... I call it a scooter, really, but I think it was a Vespa, a, a Lambretta. A Vespa GS, I And gave Eric Clapton... Yeah, a, yeah. Eric Clapton was always there. And always, well... You lift home with the well, back of your... The thing was that Eric Clapton... Eric had come up to the Record Mirror office and he was extremely flash. And I thought... And I was kind of... I was a bit resentful of this. I thought, was it... You know, he's kind of being very flash in my territory. What was he wearing? And, oh, uh, some kind of... Uh, some sort of, it was I can remember the jacket. Uh, it was uh, like not tartan. I mean that sounds terrible, but it was a great jacket. He looked great. I've got to say it was an Ivy League type thing he was wearing. And uh, all Guy had said, I don't even think Guy knew his name because Guy brought him up and he said, "This guy's a great, great blues guitarist." I'd never heard Eric, never heard of him. And uh, so I was sort of a bit resentful that there was Eric there for some weird Upstaged teenage reason. Tartan and, jacket. Uh, uh, yes, that was probably it actually. Uh, and I felt a bit guilty about this. And then, uh, and of course, when Eric used to play the scene, he was playing the scene with the Roosters. And I thought, well, I'll, uh, yeah, and he needed a lift back. So to sort of neutralise my negativity towards him, I, uh, I would give him a lift back to South London on the back of my Vespa GS a couple of times. <laughs> and, and he was always perfectly. I mean, he was perfectly, perfectly lovely. But uh, so, and, 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 and I didn't resent him anymore after that. <laughs> That's great. The, the, oh, that is that is so uh, Wimble Street. Isn't that's it? that's actually yeah. outside. Yeah, is that yeah. outside where the scene was, Norman? It's pretty close. Yeah, yeah, not that close. Uh, not that close, but uh, quite close. Rival attraction on the left for fifty p. I see. <laughs> Peep show. Yeah. <laughs> you, Lovely t- girl. Tell us a bit about this because because you um, 
you know, you talk about being a modernist. So you, you were, that was what oh, you... I, I never called myself a modernist, no. You didn't? No, no, no. So you called yourself a mod? No, no. You never, you didn't bother? No, no, I didn't call myself anything. But did you identify that bunch of people as, as mods at the time? Mm, a bit, yeah, but not, not, not overly so. Uh, I mean, mods, mods, and the mod, obviously, it was more modernist. It hadn't quite got to mod, hadn't been abbreviated so much then. But, uh, you know, I mean, if... The modernists were into, you know, they were into modern jazz, they were into rhythm and blues, they were into, you know, soul music was, was didn't really call it soul music then, but they were into that. Uh, and, of course, lots of other things, like pills and that. But I wasn't into that. There are pictures of you sprinkled throughout the book, um, <laughs> interviewing famous people. And one of the things that strikes, strikes me is, you're always really well-dressed. You're actually mostly wearing three-piece suits, isn't he? Well, I'm the only guy with a tie on in this room, I think. Uh, <laughs> Norman's wearing psychedelic ties, covering all the cultural bases yeah, here tonight. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to that stage Was that quite like... unusual at the time, to, to pole up to interview you know, the Beatles or whoever, wearing a suit and tie? Was that unusual? Well, don't forget the Beatles were wearing suits. No, I suppose so. I you suppose know, so. It, so it was, you know, you, you, I mean, people, people used to wear suits then. It was... It was a lot more fashionable then than it is now. Right, right. So there was no kind of dressing down. You know, when you went out, you got dressed up. And, you know. Oh, well, if you went to interview somebody, I mean, you'd have to look good. I interviewed Burt Bacharach once, uh, and, I'd, and, I, and I'd come to the office that day for some reason in, you know, jeans and leather jacket or whatever, and, and, and he was a bit miffed about it. Uh, so... <laughs> eventually... Get the he, cream on. Yeah, eventually, <laughs> eventually I sort of, you know, asked him enough right the right kind of questions yeah. and he was okay but uh, uh, no is that the help set that's the Beatles that during that, yes that's we, during the moment we've, we've, we've talked about yeah. that yeah that the um, so you I know, was only going to just mention one thing about the Beatles because there's a lovely bit where you went on tour with them and it must have been about uh, 65 I suppose when they're absolute it's just utter pandemonium and there's this brilliant thing where they effectively invent the idea of the home cinema they, they bought a 16mm yeah, projector. Yeah, they, yeah. Bought a, they had a copy of Top Carpy, which I think had just come out, and Tom Jones, which came out in 1964. Yeah, yeah. And they were imprisoned in their hotel room. Girls, there's a lovely image where these girls are dressing up as, as maids, mm. to, uh, uh, hotel maids, to try and infiltrate. Mm. They've been really exciting. Yeah, and you're yeah. right in the middle of this. But I love that idea that the Beatles, always ahead of the curve, yes. invented the home yes. cinema. <laughs> <laughs> but this, is, uh, this is what you get if you Google swinging London. Oh, you know, uh, uh, you get uh, uh, Rex Harrison, David Hemmings, uh, Vanessa Redgrave, and uh, I've forgotten the name of the guy, Mark Burley, I think it might be there. And, you know, it, do, you know, they do say, if you can remember the 60s, you weren't there. Do you remember the 60s? Well, I remember the 60s very well, and I was there. Right, right, right. So when you think about that time that we refer to as swinging London, what do you think of? I don't think of this, right? Uh, I, I, I think of the I think of the music scene, because I was not really into the fashion scene. I mean, I went to some fashion things, but uh, no, no, it was the music scene. That right, was right. that was the scene. That was that was really where it was happening. I mean, once the once the uh, once the beat group thing happened and the American invasion and the and of course once the once the American money started coming in, the whole thing completely changed. So, so you had that progression through the 60s. You, know, you, had the, you had Mersey beat, and then you had the rhythm and blues boom, British rhythm and blues boom. Then American money came in. Then you had drugs and Dylan, and then you had uh, psychedelics, and boom, you're into the 70s. There's a little 
moment you're coming back from a party, which, which I thought really summed up the 60s so brilliantly, and you have a bit of a spill in your Mini Cooper, I think, and you've, you're driving along with someone who I think you, you yourself described as a, as a dolly bird. It's, it's, it's brilliant. And you said, uh, I resolved never to drink and drive again. And it says, the three dots, you said, well, not to the extent that I had before. <laughs> I thought, that's so 60s. <laughs> it was, actually, it was more than a little... I was in hospital for six weeks. Oh, no, no, that, actually, it was yeah, quite, it was yeah, quite yeah, a tip, quite, wasn't it? Quite, yeah, no, it was. yeah, yeah, quite nasty. But a very, very yeah. 60s moment. Oh, right, and t- Tina Turner, didn't she... Uh, to flirt with you at one point? Well, I was, I was, I was the one I wanted to interview. It was when they had. Uh, it was about. I think River Deep was the single. The the follow up, which I think was a version of a love like yours, uh, was just about to come out. But I was the one I wanted to talk to because he was, you know, big rhythm and blues hero of mine. And uh, so I had, I had a good interview with Ike, and Tina was there, and. Uh, and Tina was, in person, Tina was much more kind of young and girlish than she seemed on stage. I mean, on stage, she's a force of nature. But uh, she was, in person, she's much more girlish. And she's there with Ike, and Ike's about, Ike's about as far away as you are. And Tina's, like, sidling up to me. And, 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 and she's saying, oh, you know, being, being quite flirty. And she said, you know, she said... You remind me of Phil Spector. She said, he's very... But in a good way. Yeah, he said, he's very English too. <laughs> and I thought... And, I, and I, st- I, still don't know, I still don't know what to make of this. And I was... You know, and I had this reputation. And I thought... But there was no... I, I, I didn't care. There was no chemistry between them. There was... It was just... It didn't like, seem like a married couple at no, all. No, no. Well... It was a professional arrangement. That was, that was the feeling that I got being there, yeah. Right, yeah. right. What else have we got here? This is actually a picture of you. It's a fantastic picture. Yeah. Uh, Norman, on the left there, with the uh, interviewing... Superb. Clearly. <laughs> interviewing the four tops. Where's that picture taken? That's taken at uh, uh, the NEMS office. I think that was in... Oh, hence uh, the Beatles caricatures I on the wall. I think that was yeah. near Great Marlborough Street. Uh, because for some reason, uh, Brian, Brian Epstein, he used to... Uh, he would let us use the office for, you know, he he he'd get a lot of people up there. I interviewed the Everly Brothers in that same room, I think, and uh, yeah, that's that's after my car smash because I, I I had to wear dark glasses for about a year because my eye, one of my eyes was all smashed up. Um, Am I imagine you are the cans of lager on the table. It looks like it might, there might be. I don't remember. No, no I, don't, okay. I don't remember. I didn't used to drink it. I only ever drank. Uh, I never got sloshed at two interviews, I think. One was with Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, that's good. Right. <laughs> and so, were you trying to match him? Pint well, pint was, that fear? Yeah, yeah, there was a big long table and I was sitting next to him and, 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 and everybody else was collapsing and I thought, I've got to keep this up because I can get the best quotes from him because I'm next to him. So I was forced to keep drinking and I did, I got a good interview with him. Yeah, He was talking about women, of course. So with, with somebody like Four Tops in those days, how long would you get with them for an interview? I mean, would you just would you have a quarter of an hour? Oh, or? 15 minutes to half an hour, that kind of right, time. Right, right, right. But, so you, you'd you just know. be going in there thinking, I've got to get quotes, I've got to get a headline, it I've was, got to get the response to the Beatles or whatever, you know? Yeah, it was, it was a very... I mean, it was, it, it was basically tabloid, fan-based journalism. Uh, you talk to the artist and you'd hope that they'd say something that you could grab a headline from... Uh, and that you could uh, start the article with, you know, you had to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. I mean, there was nothing fancy about that kind of journalism then. It was, it was for the fans, uh, and you know, the four tops. Well, no, no problem getting a lot of good quotes out of them. I mean, they were, they liked British rhythm and blues, 
And they thought that British people could sing and play rhythm and blues, which was kind of a... So you must have spent an enormous amount of your time just talking to musicians about rhythm and blues and is it real, can the British version be authentic and all that kind of thing. It was, it was a huge issue, wasn't it? It for was, a, it was, yeah, yeah. For quite a long time, it, wasn't for, it? For maybe, for maybe all three years, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, and yeah. then, of course, it all changed. So a rhythm and blues just, it wasn't the thing anymore. No, no, no. So... Which we're about to get to. Yeah, there's a, I mean, when you go and see Hendrix, and it's really, it's really sweet that you're so honest about it, that you're, um, you know, you, I think you described it as um, just too noisy. Didn't you say when you went well, to the, well, the problem too... was that the acoustics, <laughs> the acoustics at the Savile were terrible. Uh, yeah. They could never get the balance of the instruments right. And because uh, and, uh, I used to go every week to see the artist that Epstein used to put on at the Savile. And, and when Jimmy was on, it really was, it really was too much. And The Who came on afterwards, and The Who were ter- terrible, because The Who obviously didn't feel like following Jimmy. And it was the worst I'd ever seen them. I think you describe them as predictable as well, actually, in, in your... Yeah, well... No, very, well very honestly. So, so, I mean, but it's, I, it's very interesting, because yeah. it, it, it's... You know, what were you, you were just talking about, the, the approach of Record Mirror, and it was very tabloid. I mean, they're, mm. they're really lovely, oh, yeah. those headlines yeah. you wrote, like... Um, you know, I had no blue suede shoes. Carl Perkins no. confesses. You know, actually, it's the, actually, you know. I must correct you. It was, it was, it was. I never had those shoes. I never had those uh, shoes. Sorry. Confesses Carl. Confesses Carl. You see, sorry, so, so, right. so, we do leave a little bit to the reader's imagination. No, that's right. No, that was really that. good. But, but that's uh, still the take. And I, I think it's really fascinating that that what happened around the time, really, of the launch of Sgt. Pepper is that music suddenly rockets into this world of kind of concept albums and uh, to a point way beyond the, the vocabulary available to the music press at the time and they're sort of not quite sure what to make of it. Well, exactly. And you yourself yeah. say that, you know, you felt a tiny bit you know, left behind at that point. Oh, quite a lot, actually. Yeah. Uh, because once... once uh, with, when the music... When the music expanded its boundaries, or at least the, 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 the outermost limits of the music had expanded its boundaries, you know, intellectually uh, and in a lot of other ways, really, uh, we didn't really have the vocabulary for it. And, it. and it took people like, well, Richard, who's also here, I hope, yes. uh, to uh, really to give us that, that lead. And I... I kind of dropped out around 68. I left Record Mirror. And one of the reasons was I wanted to... I wanted to become a better writer, uh, which 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 maybe I did uh, a bit better anyway. Uh, but it took me took me a while to get into that uh, into that you know that new rock journalism thing. Well, there's a bit. Have we got a picture of? Uh, yeah, this is right. I, I thought this was so interesting because you you're very kind of self-deprecating about your journalism, and you go to the Isle of Wight Festival 1960, Bob Dylan. And all the hippie press is completely buying this, totally. Just going, it's absolutely wonderful, it's a great big love-in. And you were writing quite a tabloid thing, and so you noticed that Dylan had, was it, had his own heli- uh, hovercraft? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah Dylan yeah, has his own yeah. hovercraft. Yeah, yeah. He had his own <laughs> hovercraft, and, and him and his family had the Rolls-Royce, yeah. and, and the band only had a, a Daimler and an Austin Princess. Austin Princess, are slumming it in an Austin Princess. And, and everyone else is just, you know, sleeping in old, uh, you know... Yeah. <laughs> fertilizer bags and you know just eating it's sandwiches it's just it's fantastic yeah. really yeah. well I was staying in a hotel so that was good no but it's, uh, but you, what did you make of that event that was that was just you know, that was the future wasn't it this is this is where it was all going and yeah. it must have 
made Record Mirror feel very slightly, you know, in, in, a, in a side. Board. It did, it it did. But we were getting writers in that were that were better than me, and 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 sort of when I went, I I became freelancer after a couple of years, and and. Uh, Worked for quite a lot more papers, so I think everybody changed at that point because everybody was everybody was reading Rolling Stone, and uh, there was some good stuff over here in International Times. There was a lot of very good writers uh, on the you know there were some great writers on Melody Maker and NME. So I think things were things did progress. But even in those days, and this is um, I love this because if you look at the New Musical Express here, you got. John and George take you through Abbey Road track by track. <laughs> That's what was done. And I think on the left there, you've got the Rolling Stones are going to do a, a, um, a, the, rock, the Rock and Roll Circus, and I think it's probably Beggar's Banquet. You know, they, they were presenting stuff as news. That's how... That's yeah. how they did it up to then, didn't they? Yeah. And so even with, when Sergeant Bebber came along, you'd have these track-by-track track reviews. Yeah. Track four, four is a medium-paced toe-tapper with, you know... The enemy review from from uh, Sergeant Pepper we were talking about earlier actually was, was, was the last track uh, a day in the life it says something like um, John sings uh, a song about a friend being in a car crash and uh, and seeing a film about the war then Paul sings about going upstairs on a bus and going into a dream <laughs> but then to be fair the journalist was probably being played this as, as a news story you know and just. Scribbling just having to scribble it down as, as fast as they can. The enemy, by the way, has adverts on the cover. Still it's has adverts on the front page. Yeah. Uh, even, even as late as that. So uh, that, that was kind of... That comes to the end of your, your period on the, on, on the music weeklies. Is that fair to say? Uh, 72. I stopped in 72. Uh, but the great thing about these things was, I mean, they were, they were, they were very current, and you had the four of them, uh, and they covered the whole spectrum. I mean, you probably had a few few hundred thousand people buying those papers and they would buy them avidly because uh, you've got all the news in them you, you don't have anything like that now I mean you've got the monthly magazines but they're not the same and they're very nostalgic uh, there was no nostalgia I mean the 60s there was hardly any there was no nostalgia in the 60s no, no. why, why would there be because the present was no. so exciting because, because it was too happening you know, absolutely thrilling yeah, yeah. well I, I, you know, I speak as a, as, a, as a former reader of those papers and, and if for any reason they weren't there in the newsagent in Wakefield bus station on Thursday morning a black cloud descended oh. over your whole week I'm seriously oh, really seriously it was the only thing between you and utter boredom was these things and there was, I was I'm sorry I'm not exaggerating there was you know like we said at the beginning there was nothing on the radio hardly ever you know they played about five records a day you know something like that yeah, yeah. and uh, you know your access to this stuff was through this really narrow straw mm. provided by mm. you know the weekly papers. So we were a lifeline, were we? Absolutely, you were a lifeline. And, and then, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an era that's uh, very, well, very well recorded in this book. Um, and uh, let's leave that there now and say thank you very much to Norman Jobling. Thank you, Norman. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.